0: Welcome to the MT, or Multiple Theory, podcast from the University of Toronto Jungian Society. On this program, we hold conversations with artists, philosophers, scientists, and practitioners from a variety of backgrounds. Our aim is to create a dialogue between spaces that don't often get to converse drawing connections between the passions of our guests and some of the concerns of Jungian or post Jungian theory. We want to know what we share and what sets us apart, what our goals are, and how we can begin to talk and work together. We hope you'll join us on this adventure. And thank you for joining us. My name is Naseem Risha, and I am a student therapist at the University of Toronto, where I'm also the president of the Jungian Society of the University of Toronto. Today, I'm being joined by my friend and colleague, Eddie Wang. Eddie Wang, hi, Eddie, Uh, you were born a philosopher at some point in eddie's life he discovered cinema and literature hypnotized by what he saw he felt his conception of himself as a philosopher disintegrate eddie decided the only way to maintain a consistent ego was to get really into post-structuralist theory and phenomenology what this meant in practice was reading a lot of psychoanalytic theory and keeping a dream journal so I think that's a really wonderful uh, introduction to you, Eddie. Thank you for sending me that. No worries. Um, yeah, and so maybe uh, we. Could, I can start just by yeah. asking you, what was it that led you to psychoanalytic theory uh, in particular?
1: Um, I think, like most people, I came to psychoanalytic theory as a way to understand myself and to understand sort of the Um, anxieties of the self, which plague, I believe me, but also uh, most people in modern life.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And you said as well that you keep a dream journal. What do you do with the contents of your dream journal?
1: Uh, I think most the my dream journal is a motor towards creativity for me. Um, It's the site in which I write my fiction from So like my fiction, you know, and I am not the greatest fiction writer ever or anything, not by any means, but in terms of just uh, engaging in fiction writing as a daily practice, uh, I use the Dream Journal as the place where I just write weird scenarios uh, because just the weirdest scenarios and the weirdest stories always pop up in my dreams.
0: I think I was a little bit surprised to see that in your bio uh, because the keeping of a dream journal is something that uh, at least I've noticed in my life tends to be associated more with people in the uh, Jungian tradition. Um, but it sounds like you're using it more as a kind of creative engine than as something that you're using uh, you know, um, for self-analysis or, or psychoanalysis with someone else.
1: Yeah, um, do you keep a dream journal?
0: I do, yeah, uh, I do. And it comes up uh, comes up in my therapy sometimes uh, with the analysts that I see. Um, but I keep it personally quite uh, close. You know, I think I'm almost, um, there are a few circumstances in which I've really been tempted to write based on it, fiction or poetry, but uh, I almost feel that it's uh too revealing of my own psyche um or or that it's um i don't know i'm I'm a little bit cautious about using it for, for those means instead of um just sort of keeping it uh keeping it to myself for my own personal reflection but that might just represent a sort of bias of mine
1: mm. no i do i find it funny i feel like my dreams are so chaotic or so like I can't even recognize my inner vulnerabilities in my dreams through just this strange um kirby like dreamland <laughs> so so i I just like see it almost as like uh you know the same I can just put on the page. I know there's like the psychoanalytic tradition in keeping your dreams as term a form of analysis, and I think like when I was reading really interpretation of dreams, I formed an abject relationship with that sort of
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: journaling, just because I thought the way Freud did was so dry and boring. <laughs> like, I, I was like, oh, my God, like, once he started, like, missing his dreams, I'm like, this is the filler part of this 500 page book, you know. And so, like, I just formed this attachment to um, self analysis of the dream journal. Um, which was totally abject. So I don't even feel like I can self-analyze anymore. Right, right.
0: Well, you you use this term um, abject. Uh, What occurred to me when you were kind of talking about your dreams is that it seems, uh, you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting, but it seems that for you, dreams are almost something that is um, like, they have a sort of alterity. They're coming from somewhere else. You don't really feel like they're attached to your conscious personality. Um and so you know, in a way that prevents you from uh being more cautious about maybe making them into into art
1: yeah i I definitely think so i mean um like though I said i like got into psychoanalysis almost to um explore yeah. into the interiority and to explore myself, it seems just the more um I study; the more I learn, I'm moving more and more outwards into ulteriorities, exteriorities. Uh, it just seems like to me, it just seems to be a far more interesting project. Not to say that like the self or the conception of the ego is not an interesting project; it totally is. But it has, I, I guess, for me as a more neurotic and anxious subject, uh, I find the more I actually introspect, the worse my condition gets. So I just, um, in, I've done enough introspection to realize that. um, And so now I've shifted to like extrospection as my primary motor of engagement in the world. Sure, sure. Okay.
0: Um, And that sounds like a good place for us to start uh, maybe getting to our, theme or topic for today I'm sorry about the sirens in the background if you can hear those Uh, we sort of set an ambitious goal for ourselves which is that we were going to talk about uh, the other and the recognition of the other um, all sorts of other lovely things to do with um, the other how we are exposed to the other in the world and what that means how the other fits into our experience uh, things like that Um, you know as you were talking I was thinking a little bit about Jungian theory and about how it conceptualizes, I guess, the relationships both with you know, literal other people in the world and, and with this, the self. I think there's a real sense in Jung that um, we're always projecting our own complexes to some extent. Uh, so when we interact with others in the world, there's also a sense in which we are actually encountering ourselves. Uh, But then at the same time, uh, when we do introspect uh, and and look into ourselves, there's a sense that uh, we're getting something, you know, potentially revealing things that are not a part of our ego. So they're other from us in that way. But also, uh, you you know, Jung really has this idea that we are kind of sub-psychically interconnected in a way, you know, uh, there's some part of the unconscious self that is in fact, um, you know, not unique to one that has a sort of collective component. And so, you know, uh, the deeper one goes into the self in a way, uh, the deeper one is going into the other, or the more toward the other one is going.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, And it reminds me of sort of Hegel's phrase, right? The I that is we and the we that is I, right? So for Hegel, Um, the I leads us to the social but the social also always leads us back to the I and it just seems like this is like a big question but it's also a great big question to throw to listeners right which is if does otherness really exist Mm -hmm. if we take seriously Yoon, but also like someone like Spinoza who conceives of the world and monads and substances, right? And just like, you know, just that whole history of theology, which sees everything as just like a reflection of uh, the imago um, of God anyways. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, that's, but, I think, a, a big sort of metaphysical or philosophical question that that comes up. Uh, especially around you know some of these ways of framing the world that really show uh, you know our interconnectivity uh, at the same time uh, you know i would say certainly the experience of the other comes up for us you know the other is something that we identify perhaps uh, you know in our own experience of the world and it's a term that we're able to to throw around and know what we're talking about generally uh, so I guess on that note, I'm kind of curious, you know, when you say the other, what does that term uh, designate for you? I know it's really difficult, actually, to define in a way, but I, I want to throw it to you and see um, what you were going to say.
1: Hmm. Well, I would say f- first I would, like, differentiate between, like, the big O other and the small other, right? The big O other, the big other, the symbolic for Lacan is, right? this more super ego-esque conglomeration of you know social forces and you know and psychic forces um, and I'm less interested or I'm still interested in that type of other but that's so for our purposes I think what I mean by other I mean the small other the interpersonal other uh, the other one speaks to and interacts with and obviously, in every conversation, there's always the big other the Oedipal, you know forces psychic forces which are shaping uh that encounter, but there's also still this encounter between you and me, and there are so many different ways we can think of that encounter between the you and the me, the I and the thou, as Uber once put
0: mm-hmm. um Okay, so if I make an attempt to translate here a bit, you, when you talk about the other, are less interested in the other as this sort of, I want to call it almost an alien landscape. Of course, it's not necessarily literally a landscape because it is a part of culture and language and all of that, but this sort of alien setting that we find ourselves placed in and, and trying to master, uh, that is maybe one, one idea of the other but you're more interested in in the other as it comes up when i am really um kind of face to face with another individual being if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah i think yeah that that's well put
0: Hmm. okay um yeah yeah i think that's really interesting and i think that that is really where a lot of um my Interest stems from as well. Uh, Yeah. So, what? How do we encounter the other, in this sort of small o other sense that we've been talking about?
1: So, to me, there seems to be two frame. I mean, there are more than two frameworks, but there are sort of two primary frameworks. There is one which attaches a kind of shame or fear of the other or of the otherness of the other and then there's one which ultimately affirms the other as other and before we sort of get into this more affirmative jump it is definitely more important to establish uh, what i mean by fearing the other or Mm -hmm. you know how yeah having this relationship of hostility To the otherness of someone else's other, Mm. um, which I would argue is sort of our default state in terms of the other, um, a radical closeness to the other, Mm. Uh, right? Like for Freud, we as undifferentiated individuals start in the process of primary narcissism, which would just be a state in which I am an I, and things simply affect me as senses and affectivities and at some point you break out of that primary narcissism when you realize there are other egos other people there Um, but that breaking and that rupturing of one's own primary narcissism is traumatic right Uh, the loss of sort of the mother figure or the figure outside of yourself, which just purely supplants and provides your needs, and um, to your recognition that, you know, your mother has needs, other people have needs, is traumatic and it really um, propels you into a feeling of almost resentment towards the other's needs or the other's otherness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just at the infant stage you as a subject have a desire to like integrate and become one with uh, the familial unit or just become one with something um, as opposed to maintain the otherness of the something.
0: Yeah and is that so that's sort of Freud's point of view do you find yourself agreeing with that are there places where you kind of feel like you want to push against it or or is that sort of you you feel like that's a good place to start I
1: think it's a good place I think it's a better place to start um in the most pessimistic position you can Mm -hmm. um before you can get into anything affirmative I think that's ultimately what I agree with in terms of how sort of our modern society is structured. We're structured in a way which erases the otherness of the other, which um prioritizes the individual, uh not necessarily as a full feeling and flourishing ego, but as like a very selfish, you know, dark triad type individual, right? Um so like all you know, the way sort of late capitalism structures our life pushes us towards fear and hostility, um, and looking at and engaging in the other. And I think we should start there um in order to move past there. Understanding it is like the default inheritance we um it's the default state we're living in. Um, the pay-in to just living under modernity right now
0: yeah Uh, I I definitely see where you're coming from with that Uh, I have to say you know personally I have a degree of ambivalence toward I guess the structure that Freud sets out Uh, I think you know on the one hand it it is very useful uh, to recognize that yeah you know there is kind of some sense of uh, you know uh, you know maybe wholeness, undifferentiation from uh, the world uh, that is then sort of punctured and that that's kind of in a way a wound that we're still recovering from that can lead to hostility. On the other hand, um, I mean this is sort of Freud's particular orientation towards that. Situation uh, kind of troubles me because you know this is his way of basically dismissing, uh, you know, all kind of religious feeling, um, all sense of you know connection to to our fellow beings. Uh, really, he says that this oceanic feeling—he talks about the oceanic feeling—right as sort of um, his term for uh, this sort of religious sense of connection to one's fellow beings. Really, as a kind of Uh, just sort of regressive instinct that you know it's kind of pathological to lean into in a way and you know religions that rely on that feeling you know in Freud's view at least are these sort of pathological structures whereas uh, you know I, I have trouble fully accepting that because there is some extent that of course it's true to say we are still you know, connected to and, and fully constituted by the world around us. You know, the barrier between oneself and the external world it is illusory in a way. It's a very useful illusion and it can help us to sustain ourselves and to live. But, uh, you know, there is some real sense. Uh, I think most people will agree that we are actually, you know, constituted by the world around us and and that, you know, it's not just... Um, kind of regressive to recognize that
1: I think that's a great point Um, I think it also poses this question of where could we situate and locate uh, the spiritual or the feeling of uh, shared spirituality right Um, insofar as there is an experience of the spiritual um, in which you in a community of believers or, you know, a community of whatever that term means for you are experiencing something, a social affect uh, with a, you know, a a spiritually social affect. Um, And there have been studies, like on the one hand, um, it isn't wrong to say that this is sort of a primitive instinct. And so far as there have been studies, for example, Jane Goodall has reported that chimpanzees uh, will engage in structures of worship very much like our own. And Freud probably is being maybe too pessimistic about religion as just like someone part of the modern era Um, um, and, you know, enclosing it in this structure of primitivism, whereas, you know, the modern rational man has no need for um, this sort of spiritual um, figure. Which, I mean, looking at Freud, you know, one as a valuable philosopher and thinker in himself, but also obviously as a reflection to the dominant ideology of modernity, Mm -hmm. um, we can see the ways in which that sort of, I would say, spiritual drive for the social, the idea that like the world outside you and this more, you know, sublime sense is always shaping us, um, does become lost in the process of modernity, the prioritization of reason and the individual over all else, um, and the structuring of society to be in this regimented way, uh, which both secularizes and um, ejects uh, these possibilities for communities and social ritual from forming. Not to say that they cannot form because they do indeed form and they um, consistently form, but uh, the formations, these spiritual sh- social communes often take place or um, take shape in um, exist mostly in the counter cultural. Right. Um,
0: Yeah. So it seems like we're sort of coming around to a conversation about how the very idea of otherness perhaps is shaped to some extent by the modern social context that we find ourselves in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we should always um, understand that there is like no ontological other because our conceptions of otherness are preconceived or, you know, constructed essentially by the society we live in. Like, Okay, wh-
0: what do you mean by that,
1: that there's no ontological other? Like, there. okay, there could be an ontological other insofar as we could look at the essence of sort of what it means to be, and like Heidegger does that essentially, uh, but It wouldn't very much be Yeah, maybe
0: I can step us back even further and say, what is an ontological other? Uh, The ontological other that we we can't have, perhaps.
1: Uh, I guess like the essential other, the other before any lived experience, the other, the shared universal conception of the other, um, which um, comes from our core being, you know.
0: Mm. So all of our conceptions of the other are, shaped by our circumstances and our experience in some way.
1: In part, I mean, I think they're shaped ideologically by the messages um, we get, um, mm. or not so much our conception of the other. Um, when I say there's no ontological other, I mean more so we cannot have a attachment to a pure otherness our attachment, our relationship with otherness is always tinged by all these external factors. Um, mm. Or to put even more, to put once again, there's no internal definition of the other. In fact, it almost seems self-defeating to try to get an internal definition of the other. There's no ideal of otherness because to be a other means to always escape ideal right right
0: right yeah i think that that actually is a great definition in its own right that the other is kind of whatever escapes our our ideality in some extent
1: yeah um what does it mean to have a to have a, a, to engage with the other without ideals of what that other should be mm. the, to just let the other as a person speak to you and construct your own sense of what otherness is for that person, I guess, like each relationship you get in, if you comprehend the sort of immensity of what a relationship is um, is also a new definition of otherness your experience of otherness to a partner, to a a stranger, to a close friend they're all different Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is something that is in some ways starting to come more into our awareness in the realm of psychotherapy. I mean, it was really only actually a few years ago uh, in 2017 when the APA released their, they have these sort of big multicultural guidelines. It's, you know, they give 10 guidelines and then 100 pages of description of why they've come up with these particular guidelines, right? Uh, Anyway, and they sort of (laughs) released those for the first time uh, in 2017 in their full version. And one of the things that comes up in that document is the issue of cultural or or multicultural competence. And they do something that I think is actually, you know, other fields and, and other places are still sort of catching up to which is they really associate cultural competence with an idea of cultural humility, which they, you know, basically align with this idea that I don't learn about other cultures so much as I learn from other cultures. I allow them in a way, uh, you know, to define for themselves what their alterity to me means.
1: Yeah, I think to me that reminds me of something I think of, which is um, the different ways we can think uh, and that this preposition of our thought um, is sort of where our relationship and attachment with the object of our thought lies. So we can think of the other which I believe would be a way of like learning about other cultures, right? To think of the other, supposes I am the sci- scientific cognito which conceptualizes the other as a part for me. But then I can also, you know, think with the other. I can think with the other in mind in my very structures of thinking, um, right? And like, I can see, sort of, think, start learning, but also thinking, maybe it'd be just use, more useful to say that we're learning here. I can see learning as a fundamentally vulnerable act, because the only reason you're learning something is because you, you don't have it, you lack it. Um, if you if you didn't, if you you know already knew the thing, you encapsulated or had it in your knowledge system then you wouldn't be learning it you would right so um to think in that sense you're thinking of learning as a form of otherness itself as an acknowledgement that in the act of learning there's always another um which you have to mediate with um and on the other hand you're seeing it in this double gesture as a act of humility into this other this other set other culture other person other uh set of practices this other field right right so
0: any truly educative experience in a way is an encounter with an other of some type
1: yes exactly and this is like a very broad definition of other but it's like a. It's like the definition of the other, which presupposes its alien or foreign aspect, but you know, not in a way which uh, instills hostility or fear, or the desire to integrate um, that foreignness into yourself. Um, mm. Although I suppose learning is already this, uh, this form of integrating something outside yourself into yourself and the question of whether that process is potentially violent to the outside thing is another contention. Yeah
0: or whether it's violent to you.
1: It's definitely violent to you because you are changing yourself when you learn something right your self-conception of yourself is being attacked by essentially this outside field and you're being reorganized to incorporate this outside thing into your inside world.
0: Um. Mm. Yeah, so we, we're touching again on that point of kind of hostility or fear toward the other, and I want to maybe try and pin down where we think that comes from. You sort of raised the point that in a way uh, that hostility can be um, a, a kind of original resentment against being pulled into the world and, and out of one's primary narcissism. Is that where um, s- sort of all hostility towards the other fundamentally comes from?
1: I would say, so on the question of why the hostile um, interaction with the other, and I would say this is also an example of how our cultural concepts um exists within our unconscious and that we're almost, uh, stuck with, um, it and we, but we also have to use these con- cultural concepts as, um, a starting point. And I would want to like foreground two thinkers, two great thinkers of the other, the first Hegel. Right? Okay. All right. Starting off with Hegel and who's the <laughs> other one? And Sartre. Right. Okay. And so for Hegel, uh, he is the first philosopher to center the other in our ontology with the master-slave dialectic, right? So, um, every, you know, our conception of the self is really, um, a conception. The only way we can conceive of ourselves is not as Descartes would say, as a thinking subject, but as a subject who is always in relationship to another subject and you're either the master or the slave, um, so that's already a relationship of hostility and the very initial uh, moments of conceiving otherness. Um, we've conceived it as this hostile figure, as this fight, right? For Hegel, ultimately, um, when I realize I'm himself and there's a you outside of me, we have to fight to see who's the master and the slave. Um, and he really complicates that vision insofar as he points out um, in many ways the slave is actually the master um, and the master is actually the slave and the end of the analysis. But nevertheless he does position as the starting block of a sort of conception of a self-other-I-thou relationship um, one of conflict, one of hostility, one of a potential battle.
0: Mm. And then, so in Freud and in Hegel we really are, seem to be getting this sense that the relationship of hostility toward the other is the most kind of fundamental or originary one,
1: yes, exactly, and I think Sartre does a good job in essentially summarizing this view and literally just creating a whole ontology on it and um being in nothingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has this term called being for others um and his what he notes is essentially um. I am a self and I view the world right like I'm out in the world and I look at the world and I have interpretations of the world and mm-hmm. I look at my lawn and I'm like hey this is my lawn you know this is my life blah, blah 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 but then I see someone else and that someone else I recognize in them you know a la Hegel that they are someone else, they are another subject. Um, And that is radically traumatic or radically violent for me Um, insofar as the moment I recognize that other person as a subject, which I just have to do essentially. um, And I have to do it because the way they interact with me imposes on my absolute control of the world, right? (laughs) simply put, their freedoms are always interacting with minds. Um, From a phenomenological foundation, it's sort of ridiculous to say we do not live in a world with other people because we are constantly interacting with other people. We can, you know, throw theories of skepticism and solipsism all we want, but simply put, um, as a phenomenologist, which Sartre was in part, we are experiencing the other person. And so, What Sartre notes in sort of this identification of someone else's subjectivity is the moment of hostility, the moment of self-threatening. Because that other person, when I see him looking at the lawn in my interpretation, um, he also sees me. And in that look, I realize that part of me always escapes me because he now interprets me, and he interprets me through his world. So he looks at my lawn, which might not even be my lawn anymore. Maybe his interpretation is that it's his lawn, you know, and he sees me in this world. He sees me in his world the same way I see him in my world. But in acknowledging that he sees me in my, you know, he sees me in his world, I also acknowledge that part of me is now lost to me, is codependent on how he sees me. Same, similarly, how I see him, um, part of him is lost to himself, because how I see him is part of him, right? By looking at him, by acknowledging the presence of the other, I still a part of him and he still is a part of me. Um,
0: because you're this figure in his world,
1: in his experience, um, whose
0: perspective basically he's unable to totally grasp
1: yes and also you're this figure he interprets as a subject and he's a figure who um he assigns and judges um you right he makes a judgment of you he assigns an interpretation of you he says you're something and that is part of you because he's saying that's you um but you don't even know what that part of you is you don't know that you know, you don't really know what he thinks about you. And if you did, you might not even identify with what he thinks you are. But nevertheless, the knowledge that there's now this part of you, which is outside of you, dependent on how he thinks of you. Um, that is the, that is the um, motor to have hostility for the other. That's why Sartre says, how is other people? That's why I think we, you know, that's the grounds of hostility, Um
0: right okay uh so we've started off with freud and hegel and now we've gone to Sartre, um who of course is the you know the thinker that hell is other people uh you know i'm curious about this this pessimism um that i think is sort of aligned with this lineage of thinkers that this hostility is really sort of so fundamental um i think there is of course you know we're familiar with all of the ways that this kind of hostility can strike us within life but i wonder why it, it we assume it to take primacy over uh you know an orientation of, of curiosity or even uh, potential love for the other
1: yeah and in part this is my project in sort of tracing the vocabulary of affirmation or a vocabulary of um, affirmative attachments to otherness and to the world. It seems to me that because we are so indebted in a philosophical tradition of skepticism and criticism, right, Mm -hmm. critical theory is often critical. Um, What we see as more truthful is this hostile, pessimistic view of otherness. We sort of see like you know, curiosity and love as sort of these gooey, sentimental, not rigorous attachments, right? There's so much more written about uh, conflict and violence than there is about happiness or whatever. Or what's written about like happiness and curiosity and, you know, love is so much more relegated into the self-help genre or like, you know, Pope. Whereas, like, what is considered serious is, you know, what explores the inner darkness, the inner darkness, which inflicts all of humanity um, against humanity, right?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I kind of wonder if there's some extent to which, uh, you know, the, the figure of a philosopher as the person from whom we receive our philosophy uh, kind of biases the results that we get in that. You know we who is a f- philosopher well, at least um, in the cultural contexts that are most familiar, I think to you and I the philosopher is kind of this solitary figure, um, kind of this figure who's withdrawn from the world to some extent who's able to take this critical distance, who isn't deeply enmeshed in social relationships, who perhaps is even a you know a bit of an outcast. Um, and so uh, speaking from that perspective and with that, you know, we might say that archetype in mind, it certainly seems to make sense to me that, oh, of course the philosophers are telling us that um, there's this fundamental hostility in our, our relationship with the other because in a way um, that's kind of the, the performance that you put
1: on as a philosopher. I completely agree. I mean, the philosopher is often... I mean, I mean, this also just ties to what a philosopher is, and I guess like the whole Nietzschean critique of the philosopher as sort of hating life essentially right yeah you, you've yeah, y- y- yeah you, you you found me out that I'm
0: sort of quoting the Nietzschean perspective there, yeah.
1: you want to expand more on that
0: um, I don't know if there's more that needs to be expanded on. In this circumstance, uh, you know, I think one of the things that Nietzsche does that I really love is that he shows the way that philosophy is therapy, to some extent, that for each philosopher, what they are prescribing is not so much this sort of, um, you know, ideal or logical uh, reaction to their world and to other philosophies so much as it is a prescription, uh, you know, for them and for the kind of uh, life that they feel, um, you know, they are able to, to lead. You know, a f- philosophical outlook is in some way um, this ethical and, and therapeutic outlook as well, no matter what it is. Um, and And yeah, I think that I really, that gave me a a whole different appreciation for what it means to think philosophically um, and also why some philosophy feels so bad in a way. And and some of it, you know, I, I think we all have this experience of reading a theorist or philosopher and saying, oh my, this, I can't this worldview is, is kind of sickening to me or, or at the other hand, reading a, a philosopher or a theorist and going, Oh, Oh my goodness. It's like, suddenly I've discovered someone who's living in the same world as I am.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like going back to our discussion of like learning as a kind of violent or a change in oneself. Um, the sort of things we learn from some philosophers will might change ourselves for the worse while others, you know, for the better, right? Uh, like the funniest, you know, you could totally and, you know, as someone who's a lo- lover of Lacan, but, you know, the sort of standard Deleuzian reading of Lacan, like, L- 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 you know, Lacan L- Critical Deleuzian reading, it's like, yeah, you can like read all these semiotic uh, squares or whatever, but you're poisoning your soul, right? You're you're poisoning your sense of desire. You could totally embrace, you know, the positivity of desire. The you could embrace this worldview not based on lack, but on like, you know, production and um the desiring machine. And it's so much cooler. But no, you're you're crippling yourself with this, you know, structureless psychoanalytic poison. Um, which I don't necessarily agree with um, completely. Again, because I love my Lacan, um, but that's also like a just a fun thing to think about, right? Like, mm.
0: there's some sense uh, you're getting from Deleuze almost that he, <laughs> in the relationship with the other that one gets from Lacan, it's sort of a poisonous or toxic relationship.
1: Exactly. Whereas for leuze it's like it's awesome, right? Simply put, like awe-inspiring and sublime otherness. Um, for for deludes, he would say, when confronted with otherness, you just want to jump right into that foreignness, enjoy that feeling of foreignness, of other the otherness of the otherness. Mm. Um, which, I mean, you know, with Lacan, it would, he would probably say something like, okay, there's like this... Uh, otherness of the otherness and you feel hu- initial hostility towards it for you know some structural reason that found on your unconscious and but if we like do the work on it you will um start to leave this uh, psychic barrier to otherness and you'll start you know to enjoy your life you'll never rescue or you know completely get you know completely become some weird body without organs oriented to like otherness itself but like um Mm. the other won't scare you the way it did when you uh before analysis
0: Mm. yeah i think there's a sense in a lot of psychoanalytic thought not only lacan but i think both uh freud and jung as well that when we encounter the other what is appealing about them in a sense is that they are a reflection of Of us. There's also, so I have a, and and that's, so to to finish up on that point, you know, this would be kind of opposed, I think, to the Deleuzian view that um, really fundamentally there's a kind of relishing in the otherness of the other, rather than in the other as as a reflection of me, rather than the other as sort of a a part of me who I love, um, you know, in the same way that I love myself. Yeah, um, I, I, there seems to be a, a kind of hypothesis that I've been trying to puzzle out that seems to uh, occur both, I think it occurs in Lacanian thought, and it also occurs a lot uh, with Jungian thinkers, where they sort of talk about these different stages of encountering the other in a way. Uh, so for Jungians, they use this term, coniunctio, which is a term that they steal from uh, alchemical writings. Alchemy, um, you know, it is in a way, you know, people have said it's kind of this pre-chemistry practice of of trying to work with and transform different materials. Um, You know, in a way, you know, alchemy in its most basic form is an attempt to understand kind of the otherness of the material world. Um, And, you know, it's been very intriguing the sort of uh metaphors that come out of that practice for jungians um and and one of the really big terms from alchemy is the conjunctio and Jungians, uh you know following the alchemical texts talk about these two separate conjunctios the lesser and and greater there's an idea that comes up a lot i think that in the lesser conjunctio this is sort of the relationship I have when I'm first falling in love or limerence with someone where it seems almost remarkable how similar we are and how perfectly we fit together. Uh, This is, you know, there's maybe some similarity with the idea of love that Aristophanes puts forth in Plato's Symposium that, you know, there were originally this, these whole perfectly circular beings Um, and then they were split apart because they were too powerful. And all you have to do is kind of find your other half. It could be a man, it could be a a woman, you know, whatever. Um, and once you sort of have that other half, then you're getting some sense of what it means to have that, uh, you know, fullness that we were broken out of and this sort of fitting together with a person who completes you. I think that's kind of the sense that we get, um, in this sort of lesser deal. Uh But, it, you know, as I think we might be inclined to mention based on what we've talking been talking about so far, that kind of fails to recognize the other as other. It's just the other as the lost part of oneself. Uh, and then there's the much more mysterious term that also comes up, um, which is the greater deal. Um I can say maybe before I go into that, and you can maybe correct me here if I'm misreading, but I see some real parallels to uh, Lacan in, in his sort of reading of, of love and relationship in that first stage, and that the other is kind of uh, there to confirm my own imaginary image of myself. Uh, so they're kind of acting as a mirror that I hold up against myself and that reflects me back as this sort of sort of nice, whole, coherent being, and I'm doing the same thing for them. And so we revel in our wholeness and coherence together. Uh, And then there's this, this greater coniunctio that can also potentially happen in a way. It's, it's actually a bit of a paradox uh, in a sense. This is sometimes staged as the final phase of alchemy. Um, So, you know, if you're able to get here, you've kind of solved the whole journey in a way for, for some people. Uh, And it's, this connection with the other that is kind of potentially uh like monstrous or disturbing in a way um, often in the illustrations for sort of the lesser conjunctio, it might be like two lovers lying together in a bed um sort of embracing each other uh, the representation of the greater conjunctio is you know, it can be this sort of um, two-headed asymmetrical hermaphroditic figure uh, that is kind of um, seems disturbing or or paradoxical in a way. Um, And and that sort of represents this uniting with the other that actually retains, uh, you know, the separateness of either component um, and is something that is not it's not easy like you can't do it unprepared um, there has to be this whole process of preparation in order to even approach that sort of relationship to the other and that I, I think maybe maps on um, you know to to Lacan's idea of the real the real is something that um, we can never fully um, you know Uh, unite with in a way because it would just destroy us whatever the real is sort of Um, it's simply not possible it's only something that we can sort of get little glimpses of through uh, the sort of symbolic language that in a way is imprisoning us
1: I agree I think that's a beautiful way to put it I think like especially like for Lacan he would locate love in the real Um, I I suppose, like this stage of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like what you said was very beautifully put, and it makes me think of what Lacan does say about love, right? For Lacan, love is the real, the encounter with the real, that traumatic thing we can never grasp. and He has a lot of brilliant sayings about love. Uh, One which is poignant is he describes love as reaching out to uh, a bouquet of flowers. And then once you grab it, it bursts into flames and like another hand extends over to yourself. So love starts um, with this initial desire for something you don't have. Um, But then where it ends is this explosion and encounter with someone else. Um, And you never can expect it precisely because they're another person. He also famously says uh, love is giving what you don't have to someone who does not want it. Probably Mm. one of the great the riddles. Um,
0: Right. This seems like a slightly less uh, optimistic version.
1: uh, Well, to me, that's the most radically optimistic thing because we're getting to a sort of affirmative gesture towards the other through negativity, right? Um, By giving, love is giving what I don't have to someone who does not want it. It's not giving something I have to someone who wants it. Um, It's not fulfilling the sort of contract obligation between you and the other. It's Mm -hmm. something completely in the realm of unknown, the unknown. Um, So for Lacan, in many ways we can see it sort of as Love is giving you know the naked, disgusting, hidden parts of yourself to someone who doesn't even want them, and nevertheless, when they accept that um the ugliness which sort of is embedded in all of us um that's sort of where any real love happens once we recognize um and accept each other's punctures, uh, which isn't to say the which is to say almost in a weird twist that the grounds of affirmation of the other and a love of the other still is grounded in this initial hostility, this sort of disgust um, with one um, self and with another, but that in the act of love, um, there's a transformation which takes place in which the ugly becomes sublime or beautiful um, Bataille talks a lot about this in his descriptions of love as a flower. So like love is something beautiful like a flower, but also you have to realize that the heart of the flower is the sort of disgusting, defiling sexual organ, which just absorbs and like does weird stuff. And yet like that defilement is uh, a site of beauty Mm -hmm. once we transform it. Into it.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, it certainly, I can see how the two quotes of Lacan sort of work together, you know, in a way. Uh, when that hand uh, bursts forth from the flaming bouquet of flowers, uh, it's a hand that the person receiving it um, didn't want, of course, and they didn't even, it's not even something that they wanted but didn't know they want because it's so alien. Mm-hmm them in a way it sort of comes as this kind of pure encounter Um, but I'm wondering what gives it that disgusting quality Uh, I I feel like we're sort of circling back around to, to this initial question about hostility what is it about this surprise encounter that we find so disgusting and why is it disgusting
1: I think it's disgusting because it's scary for our preconceived notions of ourselves mm. um, to truly bring in the other into us is a frightful action because it shakes up the self, right? In terms of the language of love, right? Love is a mm-hmm. fall, right? Mm-hmm. it It's a death of the self as we come to know it. So the disgust or the fear of that, outward hand, um, is one, is the same fear of death or the same fear of radical transformation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- that's, I'm, I am was having a lot of thoughts while, while hearing you say that, you, you know, I guess, one of the places that it brings me to is the work of uh, Kristeva, who gives us this category of the abject, which we sort of associate with disgust. And the abject is something that we're not able to perceive as either subject or object. So it's not something that is a part of me, but not something that's fully outside of myself. And and I certainly see how, yeah, in coming into connection with, with the other, and at the same time recognizing that alterity that there can be this movement of sort of disgust and disgust and objection.
1: Um yeah, I think Chris davis is a very strong and good lens to view all of listen. Um it's this experience of shattering, right? Or you've more over. Mm-hmm before there is another, we have this illusion of cohesion and the other always challenges our self-conception of ourselves. The other always makes us feel things which we can't control. Um, They put us out of control of ourselves. That's sort of the concept of solitude, right? If we think of solitude not as a fear or hatred of other people, but perhaps more a fear of um, vulnerability, of being tragically affected by others. Mm. Um, We can also see uh, certain philosophers who advocate this sort of radical isolation, this hostility to others as um, a defense mechanism, a form of objecting the possibility of Uh, that vulnerable exposure to someone's otherness, qua-otherness.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think maybe sort of on the other end of the spectrum, moving more toward um, the more positive potential, I guess, that you were talking about with Bataille and Lacan, uh, really in alchemy and in the Jungian studies of alchemy, one thing that comes up is uh, alchemy which is some to some extent a stand-in for a lot of other um, psychological processes that involve encountering the other in some way, it often starts with this kind of disgusting origin. Um, sometimes the, the first material, prima materia of alchemy, is like dung, for example, uh, or, you know, sort of coal is the less offensive version, but something that is really kind of abhorrent in a way um and the first step in the alchemical process uh which you know can be the the negrito uh, often that's that's talked about as the first step is actually kind of making it more disgusting blackening it making it worse um but it's through sort of coming into some encounter with with one's own disgust at the object that uh one actually comes into communion with it that's the start of the process at the end of which you know the material is is beginning to transform into something that one actually identifies with you know um the alchemical process is is in a way bringing this foreign object into one's own psychic life and and kind of dissolving the barriers between one's own psychic life and and that object in a way
1: yeah um This makes me think a lot about how the grounds of friendship are often the sort of shared dirtiness, right? Either the dirty joke or even like doing things which are impolite once you Mm. uh, shed sort of the bourgeois performances of politeness or moreover the gestures which um, project us as like very clean individuals. And you start seeing someone else another as someone who sweats who makes chewing sounds who you know poops whatever like um that becomes the basis of a more affirmative attachment to them right like that's why like you know if you're friends with someone and you're both athletes you're always sort of bound in each other's sweat which sounds disgusting yes and maybe precisely because it is can you form a bond Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that always that returns me um, into this conversation we're having about idealization and ideality Mm. Um, to me it seems like there's a right we have the ideal of the other but we also idealize the other we expect the other from our position of self to you know save us from maybe our solitude, our loneliness, to affirm us as a confident being. Is
0: this the function of, you know, the dirty joke, for example? Uh, I feel like this is an example that you're taking from uh, Zizek. I, I could be wrong. Um, but, you know, this idea that in some way I have to kind of have these dirty jokes with my, with my friends, um, you know, when I first meet with them, is that a kind of defense against idealization?
1: i i think it is it allows the other to be um you know of the earth to me it's the dirty jerk is just a symbolic rep rep um relic the symbolic recreation of sort of the mud fight we had when we were younger or if we didn't have at least our evolutionary ancestors had all the time you know before us just this uh instinctual desire to be towards the earth um, to not see the other as some faraway princess but uh, Right, to, to sort of get down into the real Yeah, the material the the dirty as one could say
0: Yeah, I think that's great um, Yeah, and I want to sort of pivot to horror a bit during uh, our, our previous conversations we were talking a little bit about ghosts and the other as this sort of you know potentially ghostly figure Uh, i think ghosts are really interesting because um you know there's this joke that the way you can tell a jungian and a freudian apart is that the jungians uh, are the ones who believe in ghosts uh and i but i think you know ghosts come up uh in other places as well uh for example you know in the work of dada I think all of the Doridians are really in love with ghosts and and phantoms and ghostliness. Um, so yeah so I wanted to talk a bit about encountering the other as a ghost or what it means to be haunted by the other.
1: Yeah so it I mean the sort of prime object of analysis here is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock um, and it basically it shows this way in which the other, even when they're absent, is always present. Uh, their specter is always haunting the scene. So, what one has to realize, in understanding ghostliness, one has to understand that um, it's not just you and the other. Um, when you interact with another, and other. Um, You aren't just interacting with this single person. There's this larger space around you, which is structuring your interactions. There's an I, there's a me, a you, and then there's sort of the world we inhabit. Kelly Oliver calls it the air um, we all share. And this sort of thing outside of both you and the other is also the space in which the other haunts. Um, so when the other goes away, right, they get coffee, I don't know, they pick up the dog or whatever. Um, their specter, their trace is haunting the world around you, right? The other, uh, leaves through their walk out of your frame of reference, um, they become embedded in the objects in which you engage day to day, right? Maybe in like the hairbrush uh, you have in your bathroom or maybe you know just living day to day with the other entails creating associations with times and places. Uh, if you always go to the Popeyes with your friend, uh, while, even if he's not there, Walking by, it's going to remind you of, um, you know, your friend. Just everyday objects are embedded with the life of, the life and the ghosts of the other. Um, And that's always important to remember, right? And it's beautiful to remember.
0: It is. I'm thinking about experiences I've had of, after maybe uh, there's someone who I really want to see again uh, or someone who I really don't want to see again, I'll start noticing them on the street, you know, um, and other people. I'll, I'll see someone else on the street and think, oh my God, it's that person. And then they turn around, you know, and it's someone totally different. Um, I'll start hearing their voice when other people are talking, but in fact, uh, you know, they're not really there. Um, yeah i'm I'm kind of wondering
1: what what we make of that. Um. I think I mean to love is to be haunted or to have any engagement with otherness is to be haunted right in one sense it returns us just to this idea of like dreams you're dreaming of the other. In your waking life, and that's how they're um, appearing or operating, right? Your unconscious desires are processing uh, this other um, as other uh, in your conscious experience, and that causes these, you know, malfunctions in your uh, matrix of experience to uh, appear. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think dreams are a great example. I mean, I think we often meet these really kind of ghostly versions of people in our dreams. These versions of people who are not quite them. Uh, and, and sometimes will do things that the person in real life uh, would never really do. But then we take these ghosts with us, you know, these sort of hauntings with us into daily life, and, and um, you know, there's of course always these stories we have about, you know, some, something, someone does something awful to you uh, in a dream that you've had of them, and then you get angry at the real person, and they're like, "Well, I didn't do anything." <laughs> um, yeah, and and it's sort of, I'm just struck by the way that our relationships with others are kind of constantly permeated by these
1: ghostly apparitions. I think it's very striking too. Um, I think just this, as you were saying, this idea that like you know you can get mad at someone for not doing anything because they did something in your dreams. I mean on the one hand there's like just the whole literature on how you know dreams are just as real as reality Mm -hmm. but you know just on a more you know scientifically grounded method right you have an interpretation of this person and in that your interpretation of that person in the dream work reveals this um that you can be damaged by that person or that you're subjected to a kind of vulnerability in face of that person, based off your interpretation of that person. And maybe that damage hasn't happened yet, but you can see logically how um, your interpretation of that person could lead to any sort of damage. Um, Which isn't to say like you know, it's not to like assign some sort of dystopian minority report, sort of injunction on the other that like just because you could cause harm, um, means you know you will. It right. just seems, yeah, you know, like the cost of the of any sort of relationship with the other is the possibility of harm, and we can, you know, obviously and we should minimize that, it just you know, as responsible people.
0: Yeah, there's an element of one's own vulnerability that seems to be coming in uh, in in these sort of ghostly encounters. One's recognizing one's vulnerability to the other in a way that one doesn't want to see, that m- makes one uncomfortable, maybe.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, right. And no one wants to see ghosts. Well, Some people want to see ghosts, but one ghosts are unseen they're like the unconscious right they're hidden specters of what we think as true um but also right there are ways to attach oneself to ghosts which celebrates the ways they're seen unseenness um is sort of the um object of inquiry or the celebration of inquiry, right? Yeah.
0: Well, is- what is your relationship to ghosts? Do you not want to see them? Do you want to see ghosts? How how would you react to the ghost?
1: I'm very pro-ghost. I think to me the ghost is less so the other and more so the world of around the other. Cause to me, um right as I was sort of saying earlier, there's the self, the other, and then like the place in which the self and other interact. And, Mm. you know, I suppose, you know, that place in which the self and the other interact is so haunted by past interactions, past, you know, past cosmic interactions, but also just past interactions with other people that um that my interaction with another is always structured by uh the place uh so like I think Zizek has this very funny joke about like how you know when you sleep with someone you're actually sleeping with uh three other persons you know your sure, mother sure. Yeah. your mother their mother and them right um but in a sort of more poetic fashion, I would say it's more um, akin to the sort of Proustian injuncture of of ghost space, right? Not necessarily, uh, right? Instead of seeing space as some geometrical absolute in which things are occurring, uh, we see it as this container of everything that has happened in this space. I walk through the ghost town Toronto Victoria whatever and you know probably ghost towns now and I walk with someone else and the way we interpret uh, our place is a sort of ghost busting right it's a (laughs) it's a way of speaking about uh, the past and history and all these um, things so I mean like I guess simply put um, You you're sort of trying to
0: root the ghosts
1: out and make them visible in a way. Yeah, and my interaction with the other is less one of being haunted by the other, but investigating hauntings with the other, investigating the um, past hauntings of others in places with the other. Um, Mm. Unlike like Hegel or Sartre, I'm less see the other as an object of inquiry in itself. I'm not facing the other. It's more so me and the other are facing the world and we're, you know, describing that world through um, our mutual lens, through our difference. Um, Yeah, and then it almost seems like there's a kind
0: of, there's you and the other and there's this kind of third that arises with that haunting um, that, that takes place. Uh, which is, you know, when you return to the beach, for example, and you're getting some sense of, of, you know, what was going on between you and the other person, that that sort of echo uh, is kind of its 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 own third kind of in between between you and the other. Does that make sense? Would you agree with that, or would you disagree?
1: It makes sense. Yeah, I would agree with it. I would say that um, you've create it's not just this idea of exploring specters. You're creating a specter. Every interaction you have with another creates a specter of that other. Um, mm. And they one can have positive attachments to these specters. They, The feeling of nostalgia is a positive attachment to specters in and of itself, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, it occurs to me as we've been talking that this is i think really one of the fascinations of a lot of contemporary uh, jungians or post jungian thinkers is really the desire to kind of give um, greater reality and greater space to the specters that that we encounter you know in more traditional uh, psychoanalysis or analytical psychology i think there was more emphasis on uh, interpretation sort of getting underneath the specters that we encounter in our dreams for example whereas I think in more contemporary Jungian techniques at least there's much more of a sense that I want to try and elaborate on this kind of specter that I'm encountering I want to you know use for example techniques like um, active imagination or Robert Bosnak has a term, I think, embodied imagination, to try and actually kind of get into a space with that, you know, that dream image, that ghost, that specter, and flesh it out. Try and feel what it it is like to really give it a home in my experience, and that is is I think really a, a sort of an important way for them of having some connection with the world kind of through one's own uh, psychic projections in a way.
1: No, yeah, that's really well put. Yeah. Um, and it just seems like this idea of like imagination is this site of affirmation, um, right? Creativity mm-hmm. always um, allows us to create new Negotiations of reality. And those new negotiations, um, although aren't necessarily affirmative, um, open up the site towards affirmation. To imagine the ghost of another in such a creative light ultimately opens up the way uh, to affirm the existence of that other's specter.
0: Right. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying creativity, in your view, opens up the space in which, you know, we can actually begin our encounter with the other.
1: Yeah, um, I think, you know, it was Heidegger who linkly relates poesis, you know, poesis, the Greek word for creation, with care, um, right? So for Heidegger, we're always bound up in care being with others. Um, But that sort of care with the other is foregrounded on a creativity. Hmm. And like, you know, if you think about it, what's having a what's a relationship, really? It's you and someone else finding creative ways to engage in the world, Hmm. you know, finding stuff to do, quote unquote. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I I think that that is quite an optimistic place to get to this idea of of creativity. In a way, I think it's remarkable that it took us this whole conversation to get to this idea of sort of creativity as this site of, you know, of building one's relationship with the other.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, I think a lot of it stems to seeing the other, at least for me, it's seeing the other thus and how they threaten the self and more and how they open up the world outside right. the self um, or open up faculties in the self, um, such as imagination, uh, the ability to sit with specters, which were once hidden. And that's the exciting, you know, the excitingness of the other, which is also the shock, right? Mm. Shock and excitement are always hand to hand, at least in the effective register, so.
0: Right. Right, right, so the other, in this case, becomes not
1: just this kind of hostile
0: impinging force, but uh, a sort of opening uh, into into a new world uh, in a sense, there's sort of the encounter with the other is actually what helps you build a you know a new environment for you to live in,
1: yeah, um, and it involves letting go it's a letting go of your world uh, to make way for the we world or the our world right to change from an island to a you know the island to the archipelago of you know islands right um, it's a very affirmative way of viewing the other um and like because right hegel it's funny because like hegel and start they're talking about ontology they're talking about a way of being and they incorporate The other and the foundations of that way of being but they don't really start with the other you know Mm. what would it mean to start a conception of the world a conception of being with the other as the first instant not to say that there's the self and the self learns it's a self through the other but to start at the very first instant entangling the self with the other um, and describing the world from that relationship, um, re- describing the world from the relationship of difference as opposed to singularity, uh, which is Alan Badu's project in part. And he's like a great influence of mine. So. Right.
0: Right. And sort of that's where you're trying to approach this problem from in a way.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, th- it's a different starting point. Um, because both like Freud and Hegel uh, and sorry, they start, they don't like start their big books with the other, you know, they'll start with like sense perception, Hegel at least will start with sense perception and like, you know, he'll go by 150 pages into the phenomenology to the other and like Freud will also start with the ego. Um and then, you know, his concept of narcissism will start with just pure affections and sensation. And then finally, mm-hmm. at some point, get to the other and the stages of psychic development. But what would it mean to, um, you know, not start with this sort of um, su- subject as sense, you know, yeah. not start with the subject, but to start with the couple or just start with the difference between self and other as the very... Um. you know motor into conceiving subjecthood i think that's
0: a wonderful question uh to end on something for us to continue thinking about i really liked uh your metaphor of sort of building the archipelago um you know of these co- connected islands uh between people and and of Building, uh, constructing a sort of world together through the relationship with the other that we can inhabit. And so it has been my pleasure to inhabit this little world with you today. Uh, before we go, you have been Eddie Wang. Uh, I've been Nassim Risha of the Jungian Society at U of T, the U of T Jungian Society, if you will. Uh, so we will have more of these coming. We also have. You know, plenty of other events that you can look into that will be advertised on our Facebook page. Uh, And Eddie, you also have some other projects that might be interesting to people who have been listening to our talk today. Uh, I'm remembering that you have a YouTube channel where you've actually uploaded some of your own filmic creations, which I think are quite lovely. And that is called Stochastic Turtle, which is one word. Uh, and stochastic, stochastic. Sorry, is spelled S T O C H A S T I C, I believe. Uh, if you type that into spell check and it's wrong, then you know I've made a mistake. But it's that. And then turtle. Uh, and you also are part of a musical project, which I had the pleasure of of briefly contributing to, and that is called what is it called?
1: Hirada. I <laughs> R A space dot, we have a bandcamp.
0: Great, so bandcamp dot, ira dot,
1: ira dot dot bandcamp.
0: Ira dot dot bandcamp. Okay, well, wonderful. Thank you very much, Eddie. I'm going to stop recording now, and I'm going to wish you and our listeners a wonderful day wherever you are in the world.